0: Turn to John chapter 5. We're continuing to preach through this chapter. It's taken us a a few weeks to get through John chapter 5. It is the Christmas season, and this past week, of course, as soon as Thanksgiving's done, I mean, you can't even get the turkey in your mouth before then all of a sudden everything switches to Christmas, right? Uh, All the retailers and everything else, of course, there's Black Friday that everyone's talking about and, and all that kind of stuff. But the Christmas season is upon us. And, and as a kid, I love the Christmas season. As an adult, I still love the Christmas season. There's lots of it, this nostalgia, that, nostalgic reasons for loving it. But As I've become a believer and, and now uh, understand the purposes of Christmas, being a believer, I, I love it for other reasons. And I, I get excited about Advent and everything else that, that goes along with the Christmas season. Now, one of the things, and I know this isn't terribly spiritual, but one of the things I get excited about are... Some of the television Christmas specials, right? There's all these different Christmas specials that come on TV. And many of them are these ones we've seen over and over and over again ever since we were like two. So what are some of your favorite Christmas specials that come on TV? They start, the moment Thanksgiving is done, all of a sudden they start popping up on TV. What are some, and kids can answer this, but adults, kids at heart can answer this. What are some of your favorite Christmas specials? Charlie Charlie Brown's Christmas, all right. Charlie Brown's Christmas special. Elf. Elf. All right. Elf. Not quite Charlie Brown, but it's still good, all right? It's a wonderful life. How about those little stop-motion Rudolph and Frosty things? We've got those on DVD. You know, you, you pop them in the picture on the front, it looks like it's some animated video, and they, these kids, they're used to Pixar, and then you pop that in, they're going, what is this? But, but we've got those on DVD. Any others? There's one no one's mentioning yet. The Grinch. The Grinch. Thank you. Right on cue, Leo. Thank you. <laughs> the Grinch. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, right? Now, I feel like I've kind of got a Grinchy voice going on here. Dr. Seuss is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, that came on, I believe, um, Friday, and, and we watched it. We've watched it every year, and you know the story. Um, the Grinch. Uh, he's, just, he's just a mean dude, a, a Grinch. I mean, now we use the word just to refer to anyone that doesn't like Christmas. He's, he's a, mean, a mean guy, and, and the people down in Whoville, they're, they're, they're nice people, and they like celebrating Christmas, and he can't stand the fact that they enjoy Christmas, and so he wants to ruin their Christmas. Now, another version of The Grinch came out in 2000, a live-action movie version of The Grinch. Do you guys remember that? Uh, the Grinch was played by Jim Carrey. When I went to see that, I was excited because I liked the Grinch cartoons. I thought, oh, let's go see the Grinch movie. And I was very disappointed in the movie. Now, I wasn't disappointed by the costumes. He looked like the Grinch. Okay, I wasn't disappointed by the special effects or the acting or anything like that. I was disappointed because they changed the story in a fundamental way. Now, are you guys aware of how they changed the story? They changed the story in this way. The Grinch went from being just a mean dude whose heart was changed by the people down in Whoville to being a guy who was just misunderstood and being a victim i don 't know if you watched the live action movie they they, they kind of give a backstory of why the Grinch is the way he is, and he was treated poorly as a child, and then people didn't understand him and and there's no real need for a heart change. You see the whole original Grinch is his heart what you know, after he heard the Who's singing, it, had, it grew, what did it say, two and a half times or something like that. And then he had the strength of 10 Grinches and, and he, he was changed. But in the new Grinch, he was just a victim and he didn't really need to change. Now, although they do talk about his heart changing in the story, afterwards, after he's with the Who's in Whoville and now they've accepted him, he still is acting like a jerk. And so the story was more about you don't need to change, you just need to be who you are, and people just need to learn to accept you for who you are. That's a fundamentally different version of the Grinch than the one that Dr. Seuss wrote. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. Dr. Seuss certainly didn't touch at all about the condition of the true human heart and the need for radical transformation that can only happen through the gospel. But I want to use it as an illustration this morning because as we continue to travel through this chapter 5, we're going to see... These Jewish people who are refusing to believe in Jesus, and what we see is that they have unbelieving hearts. So, what I'm going to hope to do today is to do an autopsy, if you will, of an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart is a dead heart. So, let's do an autopsy of an unbelieving heart here as we continue through chapter five. Now, we've been traveling verse by verse through the life of Christ in this series called "Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ," and. Our hope is to see Christ more fully as we walk chronologically through all four Gospels and hope that it will change us, that we'll be better worshipers of Christ, that we'll be transformed by Christ. So please stand, if you would, as we go to John chapter 5. You'll remember last week I ended on verse 40, and so really what I'm focusing on today is verses 40 through the end of the chapter, but in order to understand the context, we need to back up a little bit, so we're going to begin at verse 37, John chapter 5. Beginning in verse 37. And this is the word of the Lord speaking to us. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again, Lord, and we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your word. The amazing thing about unbelief is that it's not something we can overcome. It's something we have to pray for you to overcome. So God, if there be any unbelieving hearts in this room this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would break down those barriers, overcome our unbelief. Oh, Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. So Holy Spirit, use your word this morning to speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right, let's remind ourselves of the context of this chapter 5 of John. Jesus has returned to Judea. He had been in Galilee preaching the gospel and having a, a great ministry up there in Galilee. And, and he comes down to Judea because of, of a Jewish feast. Now, we don't know what Jewish feast that is. But he picks up with his teaching right where he left off in Galilee. He's stirring up controversy on the Sabbath. Now, the incident here is that he heals a man who, who has been an invalid for 38 years and tells the man to, to take up his mat and walk. Now, the Jewish leaders, if you'll remember, we talked about this. They had, put, they had created their own laws to put around God's law. And so as this man carries his mat, um, they say that this isn't something he's allowed to do. And on top of that, they say Jesus isn't even allowed to heal on the Sabbath. So, so in their eyes, Jesus was encouraging men to break the Sabbath and was himself. ...breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath... ...and he proclaims to these men... ...that he is co-equal with the Father... ...and just as the Father is working on the Sabbath... ...sustaining the universe... ...so was he, for he was doing the works of his Father. Now this was an audacious claim to deity... ...that Jesus was making... ...and the Jews knew it. But Jesus didn't just stop there. He didn't leave it there. He goes on in in, in verses 19-30... through ...to claim that he was distinct... ...yet he was co-equal to the Father... In that he was doing the activity of the Father. He also claimed that he perfectly reflected the Father. And that as the Son, he had an intimate love, a union with the Father. He also claimed that he had been given all authority. And that's huge. He had been given judgment from the Father. And amazingly, he claimed that he was due the same honor that the Father was due. Now these were bold and shocking claims that Jesus was making. Claims to be, to be God. So in verses 31 through 40 that we looked at last week, Jesus shifts to something of a legal argument as he defends these claims. In John 5:31, we read, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And this, he's speaking about God the Father. And, and so we saw last week that the Father himself witnesses to the validity of Jesus' claims in three ways. Number one, through the human ministry of John the Baptist. Okay, verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Number two, through the divine miracles of Jesus. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then thirdly, um, through the inspired message of the Scriptures. Okay, Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And so now, <clears throat> with all the witnesses having taken the stand, so the witnesses have all taken the stand now, Jesus turns from defense attorney to prosecuting attorney and he pronounces seven <laughs> indictments upon these Jewish leaders. We've already seen that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but in this passage, he certainly turns the heat up a notch. It's amazing in my mind that he got out of Jerusalem after saying the things he's about to say. He got out of there unscathed. But of course we know the Jewish leaders couldn't do anything to Jesus until the appointed time. But these are still quite stinging indictments. and I'm going to read over them just real quick and then we're going to go back and walk through this text a little bit slower. Look at verse 38. And we back up to verse 38 here. He says the first indictment is you do not have the word, his word abiding in you. It's his first indictment. So these are all things he's saying about the Jewish leaders. You do not, you do not, you do not. First thing, you do not have his word abiding in you. Verse 38, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, you do not receive me. Even though he's coming in his father's name, they do not receive him. Verse 44, You do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In verse 47, referring to Moses' writings, the scriptures, he says, you do not believe his writings. So these seven stinging indictments, this is what's wrong with you. You do not do or you do not believe these things. The bottom line, though, is this. They have hardened hearts. Their hearts are hardened in unbelief. And from their unbelief, we can make some observations that apply to all who do not believe. The unbelieving is, is worse than the Grinch's heart. We talked about the Grinch. It's worse than the Grinch's heart because this unbelief comes from a dead heart. So from today's text, as I mentioned earlier, I want to do an autopsy on an unbelieving dead heart, the heart that these Jewish leaders had, and how it applies to all men. Don't for a minute think that this text is simply applicable to Jewish leaders in the days of Jesus. The days that he walked the earth, I should say. No, this is a reflection in this text of the human condition. All men are sinners, and all sinners are just like the Jewish leaders in this text. They're born with dead, unbelieving hearts. So the main issue in this text is unbelief, lack of faith. Now, before we get into it any further, I want us to see that John uses different words sometimes to refer to belief or unbelief. He uses synonyms. Look at verse 40 here. It says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, when Jesus says you refuse to come to me, I believe he is using a synonym for unbelief. So he's saying the same thing. You refuse to come to me or you do not believe. You you do not come to Jesus, those who do not come to Jesus are those who do not believe in Jesus. To come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. Look at this verse again, and you'll find almost an identical verse at the end of the book of John. So here's verse 40 again. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay, that phrase right there, that you may have life. Now look at John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. So there's that phrase again. You may have life. So the whole purpose of the book of John was written that we might believe and have life. And Jesus is saying, you're not coming to me, and you can't have life because you won't come to me. So you, not coming to Jesus is a synonym for not believing. And then we see another example in verse 33. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Receive me is also a synonym for belief. Or to not receive is a synonym for unbelief. To receive him is to believe in him, and to believe in him is to receive him. Now where do we see receiving equated with believing in the book of John? John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, and then to explain that, John says, who believed in his name, that's what it means to receive him, is to believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there it is, receiving him. Is equal to believing him. So, as we look through this verse and we see Jesus talking about different things they're doing, not coming to him, not receiving him, the heart of the matter is this it's unbelief, it's a lack of faith. So, let's do the autopsy here. And the first thing we notice here as we dissect an unbelieving heart is this people with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not want to believe. People with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not want to believe. Now let me back up a little bit to what we've already seen and mentioned. The third witness given by the Father was the witness of the Holy Scriptures. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Now let me pause right there. Now you would think with such evidences, with all these witnesses, the Jews would concede and say, yes, you must be who you claim to be, but they don't. Verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And this is where I'm getting the first point of our sermon today. The literal translation of verse 40 is this, and this is important. I believe the ESV should get it better the next time they put out an edition of the ESV. The literal translation of verse 40 is simply this. You do not want to come to me. You do not want to come to me. So yes, you refuse to come to me, but it literally means you do not want to. You do not desire to. Not, you are not willing to come to me. We need to understand the refusal here that the ESV translators use is in no uncertain terms a conscious Willful, deliberate act not to believe. It reflects a heart that is not only unable but unwilling to believe in Jesus. This is important, friends. Unbelief is an act of a will. People don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Verse 19, the light has come into the world and people what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Friends, people are held responsible before God for their unwillingness to believe. Luke chapter 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to it, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. You were not willing. People are held accountable for willfully loving darkness rather than light. And they are judged for their willful rebellion. Now this in no way... Now now sometimes what I'm about to say, I know it's hard for us to grasp mentally... This in no way negates the very evident biblical truth that if you are a believer, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, it is because of God's will that you are saved and not your own will. We saw this in John chapter 3 as Jesus talked to Nicodemus that in order to believe one had to be born from above. Regeneration is a monergistic work of God, so we must... Let we say this, we must fully believe what God's word says when we read John chapter 1, verses 12. And I'm going to add verse 13 this time. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the, almost to drive it home again, of the will of man, but of God. So we give God all the credit for our salvation. That is utterly biblical. And at the same time, we give the sinner all the responsibility for his unwillingness to believe. That too is utterly biblical. As John MacArthur says, and he commented on this passage, If you have trouble harmonizing the two, join the human race. The most astute theologians on the planet realize that those two truths go parallel together throughout the Scriptures and will only be fully explained to us one day when we meet the Lord. We must learn to rest in the tension that that we feeble-minded creatures are unable to fully grasp the clear teachings of Scripture regarding human responsibility alongside but not opposed to the very clear teachings of Scripture regarding the absolute sovereignty of God in the Scriptures. What we know is that man acts according to his nature. He willfully acts according to his nature. When he is still dead in his sins, he willfully acts according to his sinful nature and refuses to believe. He wills not to believe. But if a man's nature is made new, if he's born again, then he willfully acts according to his new nature and believes. He wills to believe. So we faithfully proclaim passages that express that tension like Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Jesus says this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is raw sovereignty right there. So so what does Jesus say next? What would would be the next words that come out of our Lord? So, pfft better just hope you're one of the ones. That's not what he says. The very next words out of Jesus are this. Verse 28. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So friends, we call on all men to come to believe, knowing that God can and will save men and give them hearts to believe. It is not an empty call. If you are here today and your ears are open to the call of the gospel, and you come and you believe, then we give God all the glory for saving you. So we plead with you to come, but we pray to God to save you. And if you're here today and you hear this call, but you are deaf to it, you refuse to believe, you in stubborn rebellion and unbelief stiff arm God, we give you all the responsibility for continuing in your rebellion and your unbelief. And we know, because scriptures teach us, that the wrath of God remains on you. We agree with J.C. Ryle when he says, Man's salvation, if saved, is entirely of God. Man's ruin, if lost, is entirely on himself. So the issue for these Jewish leaders and for the people in our day and in any context is not a lack of intellectual evidence, it's a matter of the will. So the first thing for the autopsy here of an unbelieving heart that we see is that people with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not want to believe. But there's more. We also see that people with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not love God. They do not love God. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The the heart of unbelief refuses to love God. It cannot love God. Jesus says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Or it could be rendered like this. From you I receive no glory. These people refuse to believe. They do not want to believe. And therefore they do not have any desire to give glory to Jesus. Why? Because they don't actually love God. Follow me here. If they truly love God, they would give glory to Jesus. Why? Because to love God is to love the glory of God. And God has given his glory to the one who is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. We glorify what we love, and we want to see what we love glorified. And the fact that these people will not glorify Jesus is just a demonstration that they do not love God. We glorify what we love, and we want to see what we love glorified. So this weekend, there was all kinds of football games on, and people drive around town with flags flapping from their car. Because they want to glorify what they love. Right? And so, here these people, they don't love God. Because they give no glory to Christ. It's easy to drift toward giving glory to the wrong things, even if you are a believer, friends, and you begin to look like an unbeliever once again. We come to Christ, we, we come into relationship with Him, we place our faith in Him, and then the world's Uh, all around us begins to pull on us and we begin to give glory to the things of the world instead of giving glory to Christ and everything. It happens easily. We drift. Jesus is the glory of God revealed, yet they do not give him glory, therefore they do not love God. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hearts of unbelief, Do not give glory to God because they do not give glory to Jesus. Therefore, they do not love God. They cannot, for they willfully act according to their blindness and their hard-heartedness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 and following. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist has declared, as we saw earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus' own works have declared, as we saw in this Chapter in God's Word is declared that Jesus is God and He is to be glorified and He is to be honored. As Peter preached on in verse 22 of chapter 5, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may what? Honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus deserves the same glory as the Father. And an unbelieving heart refuses to glorify Jesus and therefore does not love God. John fifteen twenty three. whoever hates me hates my father also. So these men, they do not give glory to Jesus. So he says in verse 42, but I know, and there's his divine peering into the soul again, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. People, friends, today go around and they talk about how they love God all the time, right? Just watch the next award. Actually, don't watch the next award show that comes on because you don't know what you're going to see. But if you stumble across it, you'll see them holding up their awards saying, Thank you, God. I want to thank God. Maybe even saying, I want to thank Jesus. Meanwhile, everything they're doing in their life is glorifying themselves or others and not glorifying God. It's a lie that they're speaking. They don't love God they not thanking God. It blows me away that they can thank God and they just got done doing a musical number that was so sinful and so driven by the flesh. I mean, it just amazes me that the whole ballroom doesn't just collapse in judgment. They don't even realize they're receiving grace to be able to continue breathing after speaking such blasphemies. That's the world we live in. A world that refuses to acknowledge Christ alone for salvation. In reality, a world that hates God. And woe to us when we act like unbelievers, friends, and begin aiming glory at other things. Our glorifying, I should say, at other things. To refuse to give Jesus the glory and honor that he deserves by coming to him, by receiving him, by believing him, is a failure to honor and love the Father. So Jesus says in verse 33, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me." So people with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not want to believe, they do not believe because they do not love God, and they do not believe because they love the applause of men. People with unbelieving hearts do not have a love problem. They have a problem with which direction their love is pointed. They love themselves and they love the praise of men. All men are born idolaters, and their chief idol is themselves. Look at verse 44, and I'll come back to verse 43 here in a second. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Jesus asked the rhetorical question, how on earth can you believe? It's impossible to have faith when you are seeking glory that comes from one another. When we are seeking the praise of men, and we are giving our praise to men, we cannot have faith. That's the opposite of faith. That's the antithesis of faith. Faith finds its satisfaction. Faith finds its hope. Faith finds its fulfillment in God alone through Christ alone. Not in man. The applause of man is an empty cistern. It cannot quench our thirst. We were made to be creatures that give glory, that glorify another But when we glorify mere men and we give glory to ourselves, we fail to quench that desire in us and it does not satisfy. Only when we give glory to God do we find satisfaction. For only then do we begin to live according to the purpose for which we were created, namely to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Faith produces that. We read of Abraham's faith in Romans 4, verse twenty. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Faith focuses our love on God and thus glorifies God. And our faith strengthens as we glorify God. Unbelieving hearts spend all their time making much of themselves and one another. And that truth given to us in verse 44 about men wanting to give each other glory, helps us to make sense of verse 43. Verse 43 says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So what's he saying? I mean, I first read that, I was like, okay, Jesus, I'm not quite, what's your argument here? Well, here's what I think. Why are they willing to receive one who comes in his own name, but not willing to receive one who comes in the Father's name? because if their messiah were like that and that he came in his own name glorifying himself bringing attention to himself that means he would be just like they are one who comes in his own authority pointing to himself they see one like that and they think okay that's one that's the kind of guy I can follow that's the kind of guy that everyone will follow That's the kind of guy that makes everyone feel okay about their own self-love and their own self-exaltation. This Jesus guy who's always pointing away from himself and pointing to the Father, he makes me feel guilty. That's not the Messiah I want. I want a powerful Messiah, a Messiah that says, I'm the man. I'm afraid, I am so afraid that the celebrity culture that has just infected the church has produced a bunch of men who come in their own name. And the pews are filled for those people because people like sitting under the authority of a man who's no worse than I am. I mean, hey, he points to himself so I don't feel guilty about pointing to myself. Just this week, I read a story of a pastor who Planted his church at the exact same time Harbin's was planted. Had a phone conversation with this pastor years ago when his church was 100. So what are you doing up there? What's your strategy? What are you planting? He seemed like a humble guy at the time. Article just yesterday, he bought an $8 million home. And is upset that people are upset about that. And he said, you know what? I deserve it. And his congregation is saying, yeah, he deserves it. Because they want to follow a guy who can point to himself. That way they don't feel bad about saying, well, I want what I deserve too. I want what I deserve. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give it all up. He left the mansion and came to the slums to save sinners. Sinners. That's not the Messiah they wanted. Because that's not what they wanted to do. They didn't want to take up that cross. The kind of guy that makes everyone feel okay about their own self-love and self-exaltation is the type of leader, is the type of person who is an egomaniac. And so it makes us feel better about our own little ego trips. But Jesus shows up. And he is the embodiment of humility, of submission, of meekness. And that makes these Jewish leaders feel guilty. They're the opposite of that. They don't want a humble, submissive, meek Messiah that points solely away from himself to the Father and pours out his love on others. So they do not receive him. They do not receive him because God's word was not abiding in them, Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus. Oh, friends, if you're an unbeliever here this morning... You have a love that is bent in on yourself. You love the praise of men and you love to give praise to egotistical men. And you will not believe, you cannot believe so long as you glorify yourself. Jesus, this Jesus is an outward giving, outward loving, God glorifying Messiah. And we must become like Him. Oh, unbelievers, stop seeking the glory that comes from man and start seeking the glory that comes from God. Glory like that of Christ that is outward focus, not inward focus. Jesus came to set you free from the bondage of inward seeking glory. And believers here this morning, if we're honest, we know that we are always battling this. We're always battling this. There is great sin as we seek the glory of men. It's so contradictory to true faith. And Jesus came to set us free too, to continually set us free from this. In our parenting, in our marriages, in our workplace, at church, we are so tempted to be glory grabbers. Beware of being like these Jewish leaders who, who did righteous deeds in order to be seen by others. They put on the appearance of glorifying God while inside they glorified themselves As they hungered for the applause of men. Wow, look at him. Boy, he's a great Christian. Now, you may ask, well, doesn't the Bible say that we are going to be glorified? Yes. But as this text says, it's glory that comes from the only God, the only God. You will receive glory one day if you have one God and it's not you. Those who, whose aim is to give God all the glory are themselves glorified, but it is, a glorified, it is a glory that overflows onto us from Christ. That's the glory that comes from the only God. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, what? He also glorified. 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 As we are conformed to the image of the Son, we are being made more like Christ. But in this temporal reality, we will never fully be like Christ. But one day when we are with Christ, his work will be done, his transformation work will be done, and we will receive glory. But it is not our glory, it's the glory of Christ to whom we've been united. It's the glory of Christ that that has been poured out upon us. The glory of the sun that it will eternally set upon those who make much of Jesus. But the glory of man is like a mist that settles upon those who want to make much of themselves and it blows away. So the autopsy reveals people with unbelieving hearts do not believe because they do not want to believe. They do not believe because they do not love God. And they do not believe because they love something else. They do love the applause of men. And the only hope for the unbelieving heart. Is the word of God. Yes, autopsies are done on dead people. And that's what people with unbelieving hearts are. As I've already said, they're dead. They're dead in their sins. But the word of God has power to make new, it has power to make one alive, to cause one to be born again. First Peter 1:23, which we read last week. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers. And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So my illustration at the beginning, it it falls short because the Grinch never actually had a dead heart in the story. It just said he had a tiny heart. Friends, we have to understand. I think people in the church today think, well, men are born with tiny hearts. And they just need to be improved. That's a dangerous teaching. Because what does it give glory to? Man, here's the deal: Men aren't born with tiny hearts; they're born with dead hearts. Beep. I mean, flatlined, and they can't make themselves alive. They're dead. They can't reach over and grab the paddles. They can't. They're dead, dead hearts, and so they need another one to come in and to breathe new life and to give them a new heart. And according to 1 Peter, the means God uses to do that is this word. So why do we preach it? Why do we teach it? I'm hoping that there's a beep heart out there now that's hearing the word and boom, springing to new life. By God's power and for God's glory. Oh, if these Jews had just seen the scriptures and believed, why didn't they have the love of God in them? They didn't have the word of God in them. Remember I said earlier, they didn't have the word of God abiding in them. That's why the love of God's not in them. Will you believe? Does God's word abide in you? Does it find a home in you? Does it find a home in your heart where it can live and cause you to love God rightly? Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Jesus is saying that after all these indictments that he's just pronounced, that he himself is not their accuser, the scriptures are. The reference here to Moses, on whom you have set your hope, in verse 45, is saying the same thing that verse 39 said. Verse 39 says, you search the scriptures, okay, and the most important scriptures to the Jew were the Pentateuch, which is the writings of Moses. You search the scriptures... You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So here, they're setting their hope on Moses. In verse 39, they were setting their hope on the Scriptures. They were putting their hope in the Scriptures, but ultimately their hope wasn't in Jesus for whom and to whom all the Scriptures bore witness, but their hope was in themselves that they thought they could keep the law of God and thus earn their salvation. They totally missed the purpose of the Scriptures. Their hope wasn't in God, it was in themselves And that's why they had created all these man-made laws to put fences around God's law. They were so convinced that they could keep God's law that they created extra laws to help them keep God's law. And they were fooling themselves because the law was supposed to be a mirror that showed them that they were eternally lost because they couldn't keep the law and they needed one who could keep it for them. So back in verse 39, Jesus said, It is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Likewise, here in verse 46, he says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So the argument from verse 39 is almost identical to the argument from verses 45 through 46. So essentially, these are bookends here to Jesus' argument. So I, I think that essentially what Jesus is simply saying, he's recapping his argument and driving home the reality that God's greatest witness about himself and about his claims Is simply the scriptures, the word of God, the writings of Moses. Yet they had failed to see and believe because they refused to see and believe. Verse 7. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So how about you this morning, friend? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus' words? Jesus is saying here that his words... Are the same as scripture when he says, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you believe what Jesus has said about the human heart? If so, I beg you, just as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come, come, believe. And if you believe, don't start giving yourself glory. Woohoo! Understand that if you believe, it is because all of a sudden, your heart sprung into life. And that was a work of God. And you were created to give God all the glory, not just 99% of it, all of it, it belongs to him. And so, if you believe here this morning, come, put your faith in Jesus, and give God all the glory for what he has accomplished in your life. And believer, if you're here this morning, and you drift like we all do, and you begin to put your hope in other things, and you begin to give glory to other things, maybe it is a football team, maybe, maybe it's something else, as God has made me painfully aware of, I love God's painful work in our heart, has made me painfully aware of this week that I've drifted. I've drifted in some ways that are dangerous to my own faith and dangerous to my family. And I need to believe. But I need to come with the heart that that man came, that I read earlier, who came to Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. So even as we continue to be sanctified, it is a work that God gets all the glory for. All the glory for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that we would believe your word. And Lord, as your word goes forth and as people read it and hear it and study it, and Lord, I pray that it would produce life. For the unbeliever, I pray that it would spring their dead heart, into a living heart, a a heart of flesh that desires you, Lord, that wants to keep your law. And Lord, if there's believers in here who, who battle unbelief as we all do, Lord, I pray that they would also continue to go to your word because it overcomes unbelief. And we see promises in it that kill these sins that still remain. And so God, I pray that you would help us all to be people of this book, And Lord, if we have any in this room, Lord, who have this heart that we've dissected this morning, a heart that does not want to believe, a heart that does not love God, a heart that loves the glory of man instead, God, I pray that you'd change their want. I pray, Lord, that you'd reorient their glory. And I pray, Father, that they would fall in love with you like they've never loved anything else before.